What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Thank you all for listening in today. We have a very special guest, a former member of the United States Congress, a partner and colleague of mine, someone who served in the United States Senate for, I believe, 30 years. And of course, I'm talking about Senator Chris Dodd. We are very pleased to have you on and get a behind-the-scenes hopeful look here at what happens on Capitol Hill, or I should say what used to happen on Capitol Hill uh, before everyone stopped talking to each other. So, Senator Dodd, why don't I start there? Uh, and you, I'll stop there and get, let you give a very 90-second background for folks who have been living under a rock since the 1980s and don't know that you served the state of Connecticut for 30 years. And tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was... Um, I. I my, I grew up in Connecticut, obviously, and Washington, D.C., because my father was a member of Congress back in the 1950s and in the 60s. Uh, it was a, uh, I, I went to Providence College in, uh, in Rhode Island, joined the Peace Corps uh, in the 1960s, served in the Dominican Republic uh, near the border of Haiti. I came back, was in uh, the Army briefly, uh, basic training in Fort Dix, New Jersey law school, uh, came back home to practice law in Connecticut, and um, uh, ran for Congress in 1974. I had no anticipation of doing that, but the uh, the Republican member of the House in the district in which I lived in Connecticut was um, could have been in that seat for the next 50 years, but decided to run for governor against Ella Grasso, uh, which was not a great decision on his part. She was a tremendously popular political figure in Connecticut. So the seat opened up. Um, it was the Watergate year. Richard Nixon resigned on August 9th of 1974. Um, and I don't, in fact, I don't have a vivid memory of the events after August 9th because it was such an overwhelming year for Democrats. There were 75 of us who were elected to Congress that year to the House. I spent six years in the House of Representatives. And then in 1980, ran for the United States Senate uh, in Connecticut. Abe Ribicoff uh, retired. He'd been there for, I think, uh, 18 years, uh, was elected uh, in a very tough race. That was the year that Ronald Reagan won the presidency, defeated Jimmy Carter. Uh, there were 16 Democratic senators that lost their seats uh, that year. There were two of us, new Democrats, Alan Dixon of Illinois and myself. Um, and that began my Senate career for the next 30 years. So a total of 36 years altogether. My father had served about 14 years in the House and Senate so between the two of us, it was, I think, around 50 years, a little more than 50 years uh, in, the, in that building um, on Capitol Hill. Uh, I served on the Foreign Relations Committee, the Labor Committee, um, as, uh, as well as the Banking Committee over those 30 years. I sat next to Ted Kennedy, Joe Biden, and Paul Sarbanes. <clears throat> so for 28 years, I never chaired a major committee. Uh, all three of them retired within about a year and a half of each other, and all of a sudden had a choice of which committee to serve on. Uh, I chose the banking committee, not out of my love for the issues, but it was 2007 and the, um, the financial crisis was looming. And I thought it would be the most important committee to be on for the next few years, uh, which it was. Uh, I became the acting chairman of the labor committee when Senator Kennedy got sick and died. So I was chairing two major committees, the labor committee and the banking committee. So I was responsible for about half of the Affordable Care Act 
the bulk of it was done on the finance committee, but the labor committee had a huge piece of it. Uh, and then I wrote, along with Barney Frank, the financial reform bill. Um, and at the uh, end of that, I announced my retirement actually uh, on um, uh, January 3rd, 2010. Um, so the last um, year or so, it was um, I was unencumbered by re-election politics and, uh, and wrapped up 36 years. Made that decision uh, not to run again on Christmas Eve, 2009. <clears throat> we had just finished the Affordable Care Act. And I asked myself the simple question, do you want to spend seven more years? Uh, although it would have been a tough race, uh, Evan, in 19, uh, 2010, as it was for a lot of Democrats. But it was the right decision. 36 years was plenty. I enjoyed it immensely, had a great experience, great relationships, great friendships. I almost looked like I was clairvoyant because I could begin to sense that things were breaking down in the institution. Uh, the comedy, which had governed Senate affairs for many, many years, was evaporating uh, very quickly. And, uh, and so while that was not paramount in my mind, it certainly was a factor and uh, made that decision. And uh, I've never looked back, maintained, again, relationships over the years with my former colleagues, went on to become the chief executive officer and chairman of the board of the Motion Picture Association of America, did that for seven years. Um, and then once again, came back. I had initially thought of joining Arnold and Porter when I left the Senate. Uh, but Bob Iger of Disney and, and uh, Barry Meyer of Warner Brothers uh, made a pretty good pitch to me about doing the Motion Picture Association, which was a great job and a lot of fun. Big difference between those seven years and what's happened to the industry today in light of the COVID uh, issues and technology, a lot of changes are occurring. So that was a, it's been a good life, good career. I've got two daughters, one who's still in high school. I'm a late bloomer in the father business. Christina's a junior in high school and my daughter, Grace is a freshman in college. She just started her first semester at Yale University in Connecticut. And so we, uh, my wife, Jackie, is uh, we met. She was actually working for a Republican senator when we met. And um, Jake Garn, she's from Utah. Uh, in fact, her grandmother uh, said at one point, we, we, we don't mind you marrying out of the faith, but out of the party, we don't quite understand. So where we became a, uh, a bicameral or, or, or by party, if you will, uh, although she's as, she's as much of a Democrat today as I've ever been. So, um, but Jackie's terrific and had her own life working on Capitol Hill as well as uh, running the Export-Import Bank. Uh, she's been a board member on a number of major businesses over the years. And um, so things have been good for us. And um, that's a, I hope that's not too long, even kind of rattling through 19... 60s to the present day. Well, it's hard to. I gave. I said 90 seconds, but it's kind of hard to to uh, pigeonhole <laughs> your illustrious career in that short time period. I could probably spend the next day covering many of the things that you said. Unfortunately, for our listeners and for me, frankly, we only have a short period of time. So I'm going to hit on some of the highlights of those things that you mentioned, including the fact that you mentioned multiple what I'll call wave elections. The 74 election post Nixon was sort of the Watergate baby election when the Democrats won. Uh, and then 80 when Reagan came in. Uh, and then you mentioned the 90s. And then, you know, in 2010, the Democrats had a, a tough time in the midterms. Right. We're recording this, uh, I believe, in another such year, probably. Uh, it's 2022 in January. Most people are predicting a, a GOP wave in these midterms. 
which is common when we have uh, the other party in the White House, which we do now. Um, so, Senator Dodd, let's let's start there. Mm-hmm. We're three weeks after the perhaps demise or temporary demise of the the BBB or Build Back Better. Um, what do you think happened? Why why didn't that get through? Give us your sort of now outsider insider take on the negotiations between the White House and the folks in Congress. Well, first of all, I mean, I'm not I'm not convinced it's over. I mean, I uh, uh, I still believe that you know it's never over until it's really over uh, in Washington. As long as you uh, Congress is meeting and and um, and you're still in control of of the House and Senate and the presidency, uh, then I, I would not, I would not uh, conduct eulogies for uh, the Build Back Better program. Uh, I, I know Joe Manchin. Uh, uh, I've talked to him a number of times. Uh, he is still, I think, in a position where he's willing to consider a proposals here that he could support. Um, so I, I haven't given up on that, that bill. I don't, I don't know if the White House has or not. I don't believe they have. Um, but let me go back to your question, which is why do we end up in this spot we're in? Uh, first of all, it's, a, it's one thing to, normally presidents and administrations have grand ideas, uh, and it's, it's, it's the way it should be in many ways, what you'd really like to do, what your vision is, and so forth. I don't recall in any of the seven presidents that I've worked with and uh, over the last 36 years and more now, obviously, having left 10 years ago, uh, that they didn't have grand ideas that had to be truncated to some degree uh, as a result of the realities of Washington, the, the compromises, the, the objections of some for whatever reasons. And certainly that was the case with Build Back Better, um, in my view. It's a very expansive program. Uh, many parts of it, uh, I, I think, are laudable and deserving of support. Um, but, but when you're a 50-50 Senate and a margin of, what, three or four votes in the House of Representatives, there's only one other time in my service where I served in a 50-50 Senate, uh, and that's when Jim Jeffords of Vermont switched parties uh, where there was a one-vote margin for the Republicans, and as a result of his change, uh, caused an entire realignment in the, uh, in the Senate of the United States. So uh, immediately, you'd have to realize the likelihood of being able to adopt major changes in, a, in, a, in an institution, both uh, chambers, being relatively, not relatively, but absolutely almost in per- perfect uh, uh, numbers in terms of 50-50, your idea of getting much done probably should have been uh, assumed to begin with uh, as you started out. I still think, as I said, something could emerge from that process. <clears throat> Maybe the most controversial piece of it was the child tax credit, which originally was an idea from a, a senator from Colorado, uh, Senator Brown. Republican, a good friend of mine, we served together, uh, was one of the early advocates of reforming that program to make it more available to people who really needed the financial resources. Mitt Romney has a proposal, a very different funding mechanism uh, for it than what the Democrats have proposed. Uh, In fact, the major proponent of it uh, in the House is my former chief of staff and my former campaign manager, um, for the United States Senate and my chief of staff in the Senate, Rosa DeLauro. Uh, she's now the chair of the House Appropriations Committee, uh, but she spent eight years with me and was my campaign manager in 1980 when I was first elected to the Senate. And Rosa is passionate about the uh, things she cares about and 
She spent 19 years trying to build support for the child tax, got the reform of it along the way. Uh, so I'm still, again, hopeful. But I think the fact that there was maybe we're biting off more than we could possibly anticipate getting done. And had we been a little more careful to begin with, I think had we spent a little more time with Republicans, those particularly, the, the few remaining, what we might call moderate Republicans, many of whom are leaving now, I think you might have found partners. It's what Barney Frank and I did with the financial reform bill. When I, uh, I started out looking like I was in pretty good shape with maybe 60 votes. But after Ted Kennedy died and Scott Brown was elected in Massachusetts, uh, he would, uh, that was going to change the numbers. I had several Democrats who were, didn't think the bill went far enough <clears throat> and, uh, in 2010. So I had to find Republicans to get to 60. So I spent a lot of time with Susan Collins and Olympia Snow and, and Scott Brown. And they were my three votes that gave me 60. So you can't just rely necessarily on your own team uh, in the Congress. You've got to reach out to people you might not assume would join you on something like that. But had they, uh, uh, because they did, we were able to pass the bill. Had to modify it uh, along the way, but nonetheless, compromise is not a, uh, it's, 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 it's one of those nasty words in politics today. You're, you're, you're maligned if you compromise. No one ever ran for Congress saying, elect me, I'm a hell of a compromiser. Uh, that's usually a death knell for you politically. And yet it's exactly how the system is set up. Um, in fact, what we do need is people know how to negotiate and how to work together to produce results that may be far less than what you'd like, but certainly allow you to move forward. I, I'll just tell you one quick anecdote to Evan. I once asked Ted Kennedy what was the biggest legislative mistake he ever made in his 42 years in the Senate. He said, I can answer that question in about two seconds. In 1969, Richard Nixon was elected president and he called him and asked him if he wanted to join on a health care bill, a universal health care bill. And Kennedy, uh, according to Ted, uh, said, well, let's look at the bill itself. The benefits were terrible. And Kennedy turned Nixon down in 1969 on a universal health care bill. We could have had universal health care 50 years ago. He said, if I had been smart enough to recognize the key point was the universality. The benefits you can always add to or subtract in the coming years. So I, I try to remind people here, uh, he was a great legislator. He was invaluable. He was a great teacher for me on, on, on when to hold him, when to fold him, and, and move forward. And, uh, and that's the art of, of, of legislating. So uh, again, I, I'll, I'll end where I, I started out. I still think many pieces of the Build Back Better idea can be done. Um, and my hope is they'll come back to it and not abandon it in the process. Uh, again, an awful lot is at stake. The world is changing. Climate change is critical. Obviously, I authored the original family medical leave bill. Uh, unpaid leave some 30 years ago. So the same with uh, climate change, too, is part of your original platform. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was sort of arguing for uh, uh, the, uh, the carbon tax uh, issue many years ago. So anyway, I, I, it's a long answer to your question, but I think the failure to recognize that trying to get anything done. Um, I, I'm a, an advocate of reforming the filibuster. I think the present system is dreadful. It has to be changed. But I think we would make a mistake by abandoning it altogether. I know there are those who are advocating that today because the issue of, of election reform is so critical. But uh, I don't know what the purpose would be. How many lessons do you have to learn? We eliminated the filibuster for lifetime appointments of the federal bench. In a one presidential term, we turned the tides for probably the next 40 years on the Supreme Court. 
And, uh, and I don't have any doubts in my mind that if the Republicans have a president and have the Congress in four or three years, uh, I won't be surprised at all if Mitch McConnell proposes eliminating the filibuster, uh, in which case they may be in a position then to fundamentally alter many of the things we achieved and accomplished uh, since the 1960s, both on domestic and foreign policy issues. Yeah, and some of the give and take in the negotiation, you want the filibuster for both sides. Both sides may not want it when they're when they're when the they majority. are the majority. Yeah. Why would you want to have a filibuster? But it's it's way it's presently set up. It's a disaster. Uh, they changed it in 1975 and made two fundamental mistakes. One is they allowed business to continue uh, on the floor of the Senate, even if a filibuster was uh, had been uh, had been uh, invoked by a member. And then secondly, uh, they reduced wisely uh, the votes to, to break a filibuster from 67 to 60. Uh, but instead of leaving it present and voting, critical words, they made it the whole Senate in a sense, in effect. So in the past, if you were a favor of the filibuster and supported someone conducting one, you virtually had to stay in the Senate or in your office pretty much, because at any moment, a, a motion to invoke cloture could occur. And if there were only 10 senators present, six of them voted to invoke cloture, that was the end of the filibuster. Uh, today, you really can, you now plan the filibuster vote a week from now. There's no, you can go on a vacation, you can uh, go home to your district, you can do whatever you want. The filibuster merely by the threat of it stops the, basically the business of, of, of at least addressing the issue at hand. So my hope is they can make these changes. They should make them, in my view, uh, clearly need them to be made. Um, but, but I think the total abandonment of it as tempting as it would be, we've already seen how damaging that can be. And the wisdom of the founders, in a sense, to have two chambers, one where the majority rules in every case, and one where minority interests are not unimportant in this country. And uh, uh, there have been plenty of examples where the filibuster saved the country for some pretty bad ideas and some pretty bad nominations in the past. But I'm, a, I'm almost alone in that view there. I realize I'm an outsider on that question, but having Having uh, lived with it and watched it work and watched it not work, uh, I would hope there'd be some more careful thinking about it before we just jump. I think part of the problem is part of the reason why you are or you feel like you are alone on that is because those people that are still sitting in Congress feel like they can't get anything done right. uh, and are beholden to the this these two diametrically opposed positions where no one feels the need or or the desire to compromise, as you say. No one ran on it. Um, and then when they got there, despite, you know, decades of years of history of even if you didn't run on compromise, you got to Congress and you realize, okay, now I need to compromise. Yeah. Now you get to Congress and you just dig in further and you compromise even less than you may have yeah. not wanted to going in. You're penalized for it. And, uh, and both parties are doing this. I mean, I... Uh, I enjoyed so much legislating because it was it was exactly that process. And there was a political reward for doing so. Uh, that if you could produce a result, albeit less than what you'd hoped, you were rewarded from that by and large by your constituencies. Today, you're penalized by them, at least in some of your the constituencies that you most depend upon in many ways. Uh, it's 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 the unforgiven, uh, in a sense. You 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 try to work out something that is less than what you'd hope to get, and it can be paying off a price for it. It's like the public display of what I do in my profession, which is private mediations. When you go in, I, I always like to tell clients, 
the best mediation result is both sides walk away satisfied and neither side's real happy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what you kind of want to get with some of these bills you want. You get what some of the main points that you want, for example, the child tax credit and some of the other things fall by the wayside for the time being. And maybe you come back with a different bill later on to go after. Right. So President Biden came up along with you. Everybody knows you're close with him and you were one of his advisors in the campaign and for the vice presidential choice. Do you think that because he came up in the era that you did, where negotiation was an art and negotiation was important and compromise was important, do you think that he felt maybe like once you got in with the Build Back Better, that process would happen in the con in Congress and the you know far left far right flanks just don't do that anymore and and that's sort of why we are where we are i think so in a way joe uh, we sat together on the foreign relations committee for 30 years um and and i watched him negotiate as chairman of the committee with jesse helms and others and, and produce some remarkable results getting jesse helms to support funding for the united nations was all because of joe biden's efforts with him I never gave up on him. Uh, and believe me, it was attempting to give up on Jesse Helms because while he, I often wondered what he'd be like in this environment, but he was he was hard to deal with in a much more amicable time. I, I don't even think students now know who Jesse no, they probably is. Don't. He was he was the he was the uh, he was the epitome of the opposition on just almost everything. Everything, yeah. Um, and uh, when I was serving with him, and it was hard to argue with him because uh, he was he was he was a, uh, he was a smart and crafty guy when it came to doing what he wanted to do. But Joe is an example. I mean, again, he could have walked away and just you know denounced Jesse Helms because he wouldn't move. But Joe was tireless and and working with him, and ultimately produced the results um, on uh, on the UN founding is one example. But I saw him do it on on one issue after another over the years. And certainly he did it as well for President Obama. I mean, clearly he was critical um, on the financial recovery packages and uh, dealing with Mitch McConnell, which was always difficulty. I wrote one major piece of legislation with Mitch McConnell, the, the Help America Vote Act after the 2000 election, which we thought was the worst example of an election in the history of the country. We hadn't waited until 2000. <laughs> and of course, uh, 2016, uh, 20 years later, oh, yeah. <laughs> worse. So he, he came with us with a uh, with a uh, I think a, a, a deserved high degree of self confidence about his ability to work with people uh, not only within his own party but also uh, the opposition and with with good cause, as I said. Um, uh, I think obviously um, you could see obviously the difficulties uh, during the eight years he was vice president. But he was very good at it and produced some very good results for the Obama administration. Uh, presidents are different in a sense. I mean, obviously, for all the obvious reasons. But but presidents can't, they've got to be careful. They can't do the negotiating all themselves. If there are 10 negotiating sessions, the president probably ought to show up for the ninth and the 10th. Uh, when the president walks in the room, it has to be such a big deal. <laughs> That it causes people to say, "Well, this is now we've got we've got to try to come to closure on this." Um, and to some extent, I think Joe, because he's good at it, because he was successful at it, uh, in a sense, um, you know, wanted to be engaged in the process. He did very well, obviously, in the infrastructure proposal. He did well, obviously, in talking about some recovery packages, really not minor successes, 
when he first took office. Most presidents wait at least a year before they get their footing right. Uh, Joe is comfortable almost immediately in the job. And the Build Back Better, it's again, it's the 50-50. Evan, just what I was talking to you earlier, it's not for lack of trying, in a sense. And I also believe because he is who he is, and because I believe Joe Manchin is not the devil incarnate at all on this, uh, he's provided the legislative language on the voting bill, don't have any Republican support, but he got 50 members of the Senate supporting that. He's been willing to talk and listen on compromises on climate change, despite coming from a state that has overwhelmingly coal interest, as we all know. We've got to remember one thing. Joe Biden did better caring in Mississippi than he did in West Virginia in the general election. So Joe Manchin is representing his state, uh, just as other members do on these matters. So I'm still hopeful. I know I may be the only person left in Washington that is, but I but I kind of believe that's still a possibility to come to some compromise. He, it's weird. It's weird because Joe Manchin's, you know, a centrist. Yeah. And so it's rare that a centrist is the person that's blocking things. Yeah. Um, or perceived to be the one who's blocking things, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and on the infrastructure bill, it was it was a heavy lift, and it actually shouldn't have been. I think there was a lot of support for it. Yeah. On both sides, really. Well, there were 19 Republicans that voted for it in the uh, in the Senate, and of course it got tighter because they. they decided to make it contingent on agreeing on the Build Back Better program in the House and link the two together. And, uh, and that, that added a new dimension. Uh, I don't recall anything quite like that happening during my years where you made the passage of one bill that was bipartisan, bipartisan contingent upon the adoption of another. Um, and then, so it, it, it ended up causing a, a delay in what otherwise would have been, a, I think, a fairly not routine, but a straightforward matter on infrastructure, and then provided some more time to focus itself on the Build Back Better. Um, the assumption that because the, the infrastructure bill was so popular and so important, uh, that people would give up the arguments on the um, Build Back Better in order to get it. That wasn't, I don't think that was ever the case. In fact, it was the first time in years. I had offered legislation years ago on an infrastructure bank uh, to deal with infrastructure. We would literally take foreign wealth funds and others uh, to build a fund to actually do the repairs and the building of, um, of infrastructure across the country, because you're not going to do it strictly on the appropriation process. Uh, but we could never get it off the ground. And so uh, uh, the assumption that it was going to happen automatically, I think, was premature anyway. So we are seeing, and this is not super uncommon, a lot of retirements um, yeah. from Congress. And it's mostly on the on the Democrat side, but there's also some from the GOP side. Um, we just had one announced here in Colorado yesterday. Uh, Perlmutter. Yep, no one uh, is is I retiring. I was talking to him over the weekend, last weekend. In good well, yeah, he's a he's a he's a and he's a centrist. Um, yeah. Is it a lot of sort of fed upness, throwing our hands up with with this, your generation and even some you know after your generation people that legislated for a living that got things done are just fed up and not wanting to deal with either flank of either party? Yeah, I think there's there's a, I think that's certainly part of it, Evan. There's no question about it, and and I worry about that very much because it's a. It's important work. It's hard work. Um, uh, I always said I, I, I deeply regretted um, uh, the, the kind of wholesale uh, uh, alignment of uh, maligning of the of, of, of the Congress and people in it. I 
I certainly hear it in Connecticut. I, mean, I know you hear it in Colorado, all across the country. And it has a lot to do with maybe the mood we're in, people concerned about whether or not we can get anything done that benefits them. <laughs> we seem more preoccupied about trying to defeat each other rather than to keep the goal in mind of how do we make lives better, improve them for as many Americans as we can. And uh, I think sometimes we lose that, that ability to market what we're doing in terms of how the so-called average citizen in the country feels as though the institution is working for them. So I don't think it's exclusively the, the notion and feelings of those who are the Trump supporters today. I think it's true of a broad spectrum of the American people. And I'm not sure everyone recognizes that. I happen to have great admiration for those who have been standing up recently, because I don't think it's a question of D's and R's anymore. Uh, well, I will obviously, I, I hope come back to that. But in the meantime, I think the concerns are running deeper than just the traditional political um, uh, opposition we've seen. And I worry about that. And I have great admiration uh, for those who are staying, those who are running again, um, even though they're facing overwhelming odds in some cases. Um, I don't agree with Liz Cheney on much uh, uh, policy-wise, um, but I happen to have an incredible amount of respect for her when the issue becomes down to our constitution. Uh, she's willing to stay and fight. And uh, I, I, I presume her, she's not had much of a chance of surviving in Wyoming, but I like the fact that she's not walking away uh, uh, from it. And um, so I'm, I'm hopeful this is going to be a temporary setback for the country, although I worry it's not. I worry it's deeper and um, in, the coming, uh, in the coming months and years. I don't think it goes away in a midterm or one presidential race. I think we've got an awful lot of repairing to do in the country to make people feel once again that government at every level, uh, local, state, national levels, can get back to doing the business of what people expect. And, uh, and, I, and I'm, I'm along with those that worry very much that that may not be the case for a long time. All right, well, Senator, I wanna go back to what you call the financial bill, yeah. which we all know as Dodd-Frank, yeah. and ask you some questions about that. But before I get there, I would just like to note for my listeners who can't watch the video and see earlier, Senator Dodd mentioned a Kenny Rogers song, uh, The Gambler, which is one of my all time favorites. And I would be remiss not to note that Senator Dodd looks like Kenny Rogers right now. You may not even recognize him if he walked by you on the street. He would used to look very austere, Senator. Uh, and your hair was always perfect uh, and everybody would know who you are. I'm not sure that is the case today. <laughs> well, age, you know, this does it to you. Anyway, my, as I said to you uh, earlier, I've been teasingly, I, I'm, I'm in a witness protection program. You not only want to admit you are in Congress, you don't want to admit you ever served in Congress, I suppose. But actually, the reality is that my, my two, no longer two teenage daughters, one of them is no longer a teenager, um, uh, teasingly back during the pandemic, suggested that I was far too old to even grow a beard. It wouldn't grow. Uh, so during the pandemic, I decided we'd have some fun. So this has not been long standing, but uh, started like last last fall, and uh, so that's where the beard comes from. But I'm, I'm having sort of fun with it. what I've discovered. And I presume you know this as well, is that it takes a lot more time to to trim the damn thing than it is to shave. So <laughs> people who are thinking about it say, well, this will cost me less time in the morning. Well, you don't have to trim it every morning, but it does come time for trimming. It's very difficult to trim your own beard. So. It, it is. It's like, it's like a thing. It's an art. Uh, yeah. Those of people who have actually seen me since the pandemic started 
I, like Senator Dodd, have sort of let things go. Uh, my kids actually don't like it. I have ridiculously, absurdly, unprofessionally long hair and a beard. And yes, it takes, there's like a, you have to buy products for it and do things to, to, keep, to keep the look, I guess. <laughs> anyway, your beard looks good. I think it looks fine, Evan. All right, thanks. I love your beard and, and I'm glad I got to talk about it on here. So Dodd-Frank, uh, one of the most, you know, famous, most influential piece of financial piece of the legislation of the last hundred years. I won't go all the way back to the establishment of the central bank. I'm not going to give you that type of credit, Senator. But coming out of the financial crisis, uh, this was a, a needed reform. Tell us how you sort of took the lead on it, why it was you and why it was important to you. Well, it, 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 uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, I've been uh, uh, for 28 years, I sat next to three Democratic senators who weren't going anywhere. Um, and that's how it works. You have to stay around long enough. And then the process of, um, of seniority moves you along. And, uh, and I happen to have been lucky enough to sit next to three people who were terrific members of the Senate and great teachers in many ways and a lot of fun to be with. Uh, all three in a very short period of time decided for different reasons. Obviously, the exception of Ted Kennedy, who died. Um, but in the case of Sarbanes, uh, Paul had, had been there a number of years and decided that was enough. And, uh, and Joe Biden was chosen to be Obama's vice president. So I, I literally had a choice of chairing three committees, in a sense. Um, I had been chairing or was about to chair with Ken Kennedy getting sick, uh, the Labor Committee, which I did become the acting chair on that. Uh, I, the Foreign Relations Committee, I mentioned I served in the Peace Corps, spent a lot of time in Latin America during my 30 years. I either chaired or was the ranking Democrat on the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere for 30 years. I, for 26 years, straight years, I ran the interparliamentary meeting with Mexico. Uh, and uh, so cared deeply about the region and decided that members in the Senate who had, I thought, the most interesting careers were ones that concentrated on two or three things. Uh, not that they were unaware of other matters, but developed a real expertise in certain areas. Uh, the banking committee I was on, I was put on the banking committee the first day I arrived in the Senate, as I was on the Foreign Relations Committee. And the banking committee was a good spot for me, Connecticut uh, being a neighbor of New York and the financial capital of the world. A lot of people in my state, obviously, work in the financial services industry. The insurance industry, obviously, out of Hartford, Connecticut, is a, is a major uh, financial service industry. So it was a, a nice fit. And by 2006, I, everyone could see this wasn't any great surprise what was happening financially. Uh, it wasn't as widely known or respected. But in 2006, there were hearings that we had in Congress on the mortgage crisis. Um, it didn't really blow up until 2007 to a large extent. And as chairman of the new chairman of that committee, I held some 90 hearings, both formal and informal hearings, on the growing problem of the financial crisis. It wasn't until March of 2000, uh, 2008 uh, that you had the blow up with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, Bear Stearns, um, in which case over that weekend of St. Patrick's Day weekend, 2008, it was an explosion. And basically the administration, the Bush administration at the time, sort of was in the business of selling it as kind of a one-off situation. Uh, it was anything but a one-off. It was just, a, it was the tip of the iceberg in a sense, uh, both figuratively and literally. Um, and it was six months almost to the day later uh, that there was a meeting in Nancy Pelosi's office. 
there were 15 of us, I think 15 or 16 of us in that room. Uh, it was uh, uh, Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time. It was uh, Chris Cox, who was the head of the Securities Exchange Commission. Uh, it was the Republican leadership, the Democratic leadership, both the House and the Senate. Uh, and then it was uh, those of us who were the chairs and ranking members of the Financial Services of the Banking Committee uh, in the Senate, uh, along with Hank Paulson, the uh, Secretary of the Treasury. I'll never forget, Evan, the, the, uh, the words of Ben Bernanke uh, in that closed-door meeting with the Speaker uh, on September 18th of 2008. And the, the words were the following, almost verbatim. Unless you act, speaking to the members of the Congress, within a matter of days, the entire financial system of this country and a good part of the world could melt down. Uh, needless to say, the oxygen left the room. This was not just anyone talking. Highly respected Ben Bernanke, very soft-spoken guy, did not, not a table banger, not a bellower, but very quietly, very directly, warned us that if we did not move very quickly, this thing could become even far worse. About two days, less than two days later, at about 1.30 in the morning, I received a bill by email uh, from the Treasury Department, and the bill was a page and a half long. It said, give, me, uh, give us $750 billion, I think it was, uh, no court, no regulator can intervene. Needless to say, when that news became public, there was an explosion in the country and, 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 and justifiable, a sense of outrage that the American taxpayer was going to write a check for 700 plus, 700 plus billions of dollars uh, to bail out some 12 or 14 financial banks uh, as a result of bringing this country to the brink of disaster financially. Um, I reached out to, to a, a Republican colleague of mine, Judd Gregg from New Hampshire, served on the banking committee with me and asked him if he'd work with me on the TARP bill. Evan, I never did anything as unpopular as write that bill in the fall of 2008. And I'll argue to my deathbed that I didn't do anything as, as important in many ways as pass that legislation. And we'll be arguing about that for, for hundreds of years to come, whether or not we should have just let it run its course or whether or not we made the right move to step in and try and stabilize the financial situation of the country. I opted for the latter. Uh, I, I don't know the answer if we'd gone the first route, uh, but I figured that's that's a good academic question to debate. But on the brink of this thing, which, which step do we take? Do we wait it and see if it doesn't happen or do we do something to try and intervene? I jumped for the intervention, intervention side, but it had to be substantially changed, uh, the, the so-called TARP bill. We did do that in a substantial way. Uh, it was about, a, instead of being a page and a half, it was about a hundred pages long. We had warrants in it. Uh, we, we took care of people in foreclosure. Uh, we provided some extra money for the automobile industry because that problem was looming. It was a very comprehensive bill. We prohibited any pay raises uh, for anybody in the banking industry. Uh, we had look back provisions and so forth that were critically important. The Senate passed the bill 75 to 24. The House failed in the first attempt and passed it in the second. But the question became very quickly in my mind then, are we gonna leave the situation, the architecture uh, in this country of financial services as it was in the fall of 2008, or do we try and reform it uh, and try and do some things that needed to be done? And that became the, the genesis of what Barney Frank and I developed over the next year or so and, and passed in July of 2010, uh, the so-called Dodd-Frank bill. I actually, is a just, Small anecdote. I, I, well, the motion was made about 4.30 in the morning, Evan, on a conference bill, which is a, 
some of the most interesting negotiations in the place when the House and the Senate meet to resolve differences. At about 4.30 in the morning, Congressman Kanjorski of Pennsylvania moved to call the bill uh, a formal legislative title, uh, the Frank Dodd bill. Uh, he was a House member. And Barney Frank, who has a wonderful sense of humor, said, no, you can't do that. He said, people think it's one guy and uh, we, we can't let that happen. He said, so we got to call it. The senators always go first. So it's a Dodd Frank. And they voted and I voted against it. I, I was not, I thought we did a very good job with the bill, but so many more people are involved than just two members. Uh, Wait, so, so Frank Dodd, because that sounds like someone's name. Right. Yeah. So the objections to, <laughs> I, I'm so glad you covered this because I wanted, I wanted the back. Why is it called Dodd Frank? Because yeah. um, you, you know, House usually votes first, then Senate. Yeah. Um, and so now, now I know. Why uh, it's that, Dodd Frank bill. Uh, and as I say, I, uh, historically, banking committee legislation has, has names on it. I mean, there's a Glass Steagall, obviously, which people who follow Sarbanes. You mentioned Paul Sarbanes. Sarbanes Oxley. Yeah. Sarbanes Oxley. Uh, was that way? Uh, there was a. Uh, uh, any number of other ones that won't bother uh, Graham, Leach, Briley, all sorts of different. Yeah. Um, but but I, I really feel there were so many people involved in this. Obviously, we were the two chairs and pulling this all together. And I just tell you one other thing and why it why it worked. I had a great partner. He didn't end up supporting the bill, but he did for a long time and, and made it possible. It was Bob Corker, Republican of Tennessee, who re re stepped away from, from public life of a, a uh, a couple of years ago, still a great friend. And um, I had to go five deep on the banking committee to get a, 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 a co-sponsor uh, to work on the bill, uh, to Bob Corker. Uh, everyone else just had wanted nothing to do with it. We have five deep to get Republicans. Corker's a what, Tennessee Republican. Yeah. And I'll tell you, some people have forgotten about, but it's an important point to make. I mentioned earlier that I was responsible for writing half of the Affordable Care Act. That was the longest markup of the Labor Committee since 1868. Um, uh, went on for a month or more, day in and day out, trying to put that bill together, my piece of the bill. Um, and and, and uh, so we dealt with some, I think, 400 amendments, something like that, a staggering number of amendments debated every day back and forth until we finally came to the final passage of the bill in committee, uh, July 15th, 2009. When we did the markup of the financial reform bill, um, there were, there's always a little bit of a, a game inside the, the, the Congress when you're, how many amendments will be filed on a Friday before the markup of a bill. And, uh, and everyone can make their guesses. And there's usually a pot of 20 bucks or 25 bucks who gets the closest to the number. So I always, it was fun to play the game with the staff and others. So I predicted it'd be 401 amendments filed by the Republicans, uh, by all, everybody, Democrats and Republicans. And I won uh, the guess. It was 401 amendments that were filed by five o'clock on the Friday before the markup of the, of the financial reform bill. And over the weekend, I got a call from Dick Shelby, who's a good friend. He was the ranking member of the banking committee from Alabama. And, and uh, Shelby, uh, Dick said to me, look, I want to call you and give you a heads up that uh, when we do the markup on Tuesday, we're not going to offer any amendments. Uh, the Republicans will have no amendments to offer. Well, of course, they no amendments. And uh, I got all of my Democratic colleagues and I said, I don't see any reason why we should be offering amendments or they're not. So the markup of the financial reform bill lasted totally 19 minutes. Uh, here's the largest package of financial reforms since the 30s uh, on the thing. And not there was not one amendment offered uh, by the opposition uh, to the bill. Now we went to the floor and there were 60 amendments debated 
on the floor of the Senate, but compare the labor bill, the Affordable Care Act, and the financial reform bill. One, the longest markup in the history of the committee since 1868, and the second, the shortest of any major piece of legislation. And that bill in years, decades, if not decades. Well, it speaks to the magnitude of a crisis, but also the, the members of the Congress at that time. Do, yeah. do you think if we faced a crisis, I mean, we're, no. you know, a financial crisis like that, one, I know we're going to face it, but do we have people in Congress that would be capable of this type of, of agreement or compromise? I'd like to joint think attack? it's even, it's even more, it's even, it's a great point you make, Evan. And they, but let me add a, 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 a touch to that. We debated the TARP legislation 40 days before a national election. It's October 1. The national election was the first few days in November. Um, and so here you had the Bush administration, um, and, and it was on their watch that this happened. Uh, uh, not suggesting it was all their fault, but nonetheless was on their watch. You have Democrats in control of the House and the Senate, uh, and we're working to try and resolve the matter 40 days instead of uh, you know, old Franklin Roosevelt, in, the, in those days, of course, the inauguration was not until March, but basically he told Herbert Hoover, we'll see you in March. Uh, they didn't spend the fall trying to fix the problems that had happened under the Hoover administration. We did. I'd like to think that Democrats and Republicans would act similarly in a reverse situation, but I'm, I'm afraid I can't get myself to believe that would be the case. I did one other thing, Evan, too, which uh, was very risky, uh, but I think it had a lot to do with what became the success of that bill. And it is, it's still, the bill is in great shape to this day, 12 years later. Uh, there have been minor changes to it, but very minor. And one night uh, I realized that this could not be a bill that I could do myself, even with some democratic support, my committee, or maybe a couple of Republicans here and there. And so I asked the entire committee to come together. Uh, I didn't even tell my own staff what I was doing. And uh, we met and I announced pairings. I announced uh, pairings between a Republican and a Democrat to deal with various aspects of the bill. So I asked Jack Reed of Rhode Island uh, to work with Judd Gregg on the derivatives piece of the bill. I asked uh, Chuck Schumer uh, and Mike Crapo to work on corporate governance. I asked Bob Corker and uh, Mark Warner to work on too big to fail uh, part of the bill. Uh, I said I'd work with Dick Shelby on the consumer protection piece of the bill. Uh, and no one objected. No one said, well, who the you know, hell are you to announce? I don't want to work with him. <laughs> <laughs> but no one did. Uh, and while they didn't solve every problem, everybody gave everybody a job uh, and a major piece of the bill that had to be addressed. And, and they all worked. Now, it didn't solve every problem. Uh, that would be foolish to suggest that. But in some cases, they did. And it came up with their own ideas. So at the end of the day, everybody felt as though they were involved. Uh, it wasn't the D's against the R's. Uh, what do you do? Uh, the guy, the chairman of the committee asks you if you'll be involved and help try and deal with it. A, a different Rescue the financial institutions that almost brought us to the precipice of disaster. You say yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and uh, but it was, uh, as I say, it was a risky thing to do. I waited for someone in that room to basically accuse me of exceeding my authority as a chairman of a committee to assign Republicans jobs. But no one did. And everybody pitched in and people tried uh, pretty much to, to work on it. And so in the end, uh, the bill needed 60 votes to pass. Um, but uh, to this day, uh, I had wonderful help in the end. Susan Collins of Maine, um, Olympia Snow of Maine, uh, Scott Brown, who was the new senator from Massachusetts. Those are the three Republican votes 
Uh, all New Englanders from your home territory all voted for it, right? You got three Republicans. It, yeah. And made, uh, made the difference of getting us to 60 votes. So I'm sorry if I belabored that point, but it was an example of, of things you can do to make this thing work again. And uh, again, I, it, it becomes so hyper-polarized uh, that, that it seems almost impossible to imagine a, a reoccurrence, to answer your question, of what happened in the fall of 2008 on, on arguably... Because a lot of people lost their seats uh, over that vote in 40 days. Uh, Gordon Smith, the Republican, voted for it. He was defeated. Bob Bennett of Utah, two years later, was defeated, is denied the nomination by his own party. Uh, Kay Bailey Hutchison of Texas, I think, lost the Republican nomination for governor because she voted uh, for the TARP bill. It was a lethal vote uh, for people. And uh, yet, yeah, we would think that hopeful that your your politicians are not thinking about their next election campaign and doing what they think is right and based on the, the knowledge that they have. Uh, so those are good examples, even though they all lost their seats. Yeah. So we have um, not a whole lot of time left, Senator Dodd, and I want to go back to something you said at the beginning and give you the opportunity to talk about this, because I think that's something that not not everybody knows about. Your dad, Thomas, was a senator from Connecticut prior to you. Um, but for me, the most important thing that he did uh, was he was one of the prosecutors at the Nuremberg trials. And I'm not sure everybody knows that. And having relatives that have died in the Holocaust, uh, thank you, thank him uh, for that service. So, and I understand that the University of Connecticut has dedicated a school or you dedicated a school there in his memory and his honor. So I want to give you the opportunity to talk about that a little bit before I let you go. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Uh, well, it was it was a life-altering experience. My father was 37 years old. Um, he was been with the Justice Department. He was the special assistant uh, to five attorney generals, three of whom went on the Supreme Court, Murphy, Clark, and Jackson. He had almost a father-son relationship with Robert Jackson, who many people consider maybe the best writer on the Supreme Court in the 20th century. Had a very limited legal education, actually, from upstate New York. Um, at the end of the war, right on the end of the war, prior to the end of the war, actually, in April of 45, Franklin Roosevelt uh, convinced the, uh, our, our, our allies, uh, the Soviet Union, the British and the French, that there ought to be a, um, a, 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 an examination of the rule of law. How did this, how'd this happen? Um, and of course, Roosevelt dies in April of 45, but Truman picks up the, uh, the, the request uh, Roosevelt had asked Jackson if he'd, in fact, it was interesting what he did. Uh, he asked Jackson, who was a sitting Supreme Court justice, to be the chief prosecutor for the United States. And he asked the attorney general of the United States to become a judge at Nuremberg. So the prosecutor became a judge and the judge became a prosecutor for the United States. Um, they met in England in the spring of 45 to determine how, whatever the hell you want to call the Soviet legal system at the time, French, common, uh, French uh, Napoleonic Code and the British common law and our own constitutional system, how are we gonna, how are we gonna operate together four countries? Uh, Winston Churchill, uh, he said, what the hell are you talking about a trial? Let's just line them up and shoot them. What the hell would you give these people a trial for? Uh, the, the Russians were more liberal. They said, we'll try them for a week and then shoot them all. Uh, and uh, and the, the French, I, I can't remember what the French's position on all of that was, but the United States really felt very strongly about the rule of law. And in fact, everything that the Nazis did, they did because of a bunch of laws passed, obviously called the Nuremberg Laws. Um, 
They gave them a legal justification for everything they did. And so it was important, I think, for the United States. This wasn't about territory. It wasn't about you know acquisitions of property and and uh, resources. It was about it was about just the complete aberration of, of the rule of law uh, and and the uh, the violation of any by any human rights standard what occurred. So the the uh, the, the trial lasted uh, about eighteen months. It was the it was the first? There were thirteen trials in all between forty five and forty nine. The the first trial was all of the big wigs. Uh, who were alive uh, at the time, there were 21 of them uh, at Nuremberg. And my father went over as an, uh, to the in, part of the initial interrogations uh, of, the, uh, of the defendants. Uh, but uh, there were, he was quickly asked by the fall of 1945 <clears throat> when a guy named Wild Bill Donovan, <clears throat> who was the author of the OSS, which became the CIA, he and Jackson couldn't really get along very well, so he left. And Jackson turned to my father and asked him to become his executive trial counsel. So my father became the number two prosecutor at 38 years old um, with 180 lawyers underneath him every day uh, to put together uh, the trial. Jackson made the case in one sentence, Evan, which I had to sort of memorize growing up as a child around our dining room table because my father endlessly talked about Nuremberg and the impact it had on him. But Jackson, a brilliant speech he made at the outset of the trial in November of 1945, uh, explained what Nuremberg was about in one sentence, in which he said, four great nations flushed with victory and stung with injury, stayed the hand of vengeance by voluntarily submitting their captive enemies to the judgment of the rule of law, the greatest tribute that power ever paid to reason. That one sentence captured exactly what Nuremberg was designed to do, in a sense, uh, and to lay out. My father wrote my mother every single day from Nuremberg. Uh, eight, 10, 12 page letters, which I only discovered in 1993. Uh, I was a year old when my father went to Nuremberg. I'd heard about letters, but I didn't know that there was actually a, a daily letter, a handwritten letter written every day from Nuremberg for almost 18 months. Uh, and I published them a number of years ago. And the great love letter, I remember reading the first time, I thought, who the hell is this guy talking about my mother this way? Because I'm one of six children. Uh, That's your dad. <laughs> And, uh, and obviously growing up, everything he ever did thereafter, Nuremberg was the genesis of it in many ways. So uh, uh, he was a, a great advocate of civil rights. He was one of the floor leaders of the Civil Rights Bill, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, he was a, uh, we all had guns growing up. We had a farm. And so I learned how to shoot and hunt very early on and loved to do it. And, uh, but my father, because of the mail order of weapons, you could order any weapon in the world you could think of in the back of Argus here, Field and Stream up until the 1960s. And, my, and Connecticut was the largest gun producing state in the country at the time. And my father offered legislation to stop the mail order of weapons. Um, it took the deaths of three American heroes, obviously uh, John Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy to finally convince the Congress to pass two bills he authored, the Safe Streets Act and the Omnibus Crime Bill, um, which stopped the mail order. You could, anybody could order bazookas and so forth. Anyway, he had a rough ending in politics, Evan, as well. And I once asked him, or rather was in a room when he was being asked by a reporter, if he had known when he graduated from Yale Law School in 1933, how his political career would end. He was defeated in his last race, died very young, age 63. Uh, and she said to him, would you do it again if you'd known how it would end? And I'll never forget, Evan, uh, whatever I was doing in the room at the time I put down, but before I could even lower 
raised my eyes, he answered the question. He said, I would do it again in a minute. There's no other calling in life like public service where you can make a difference in the lives of as many people. I've never forgotten the line, never forgotten what he said that day. Died six months later. Uh, but he believed that very dearly. And I think Nuremberg had a lot to do with that conclusion and that belief as well, uh, that you can make a difference. Uh, and, and Nuremberg made a difference uh, again, the rule of law. And so um, when uh, I donated his papers to the University of Connecticut 26 years ago, uh, and it began a program, we're now the only public university in the country that has an undergraduate and graduate degree program in human rights. Um, I started a speaker's program and recognizing individuals, both domestically and internationally, uh, where we give them a, a good hunk of change to allow them to continue their work. My last, the last person to receive that was Brian Stevenson, who started the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, responsible for the lynching, uh, the, the lynching uh, museum and so forth that he built uh, there as well. And, uh, and they, uh, back in October, President Biden came to the University of Connecticut and rededicated what is now called the Dodd Center for Human Rights at the University of Connecticut. So, uh, and they were generously did it for both my father and for me. So it's a Dodd Center. And uh, so we've, uh, it's been a last 25, 26 years have built this well, working with a guy named Gary Gladstein, who made a major contribution for the Human Rights Institute on the campus as well. So it's, uh, it's uh, I think something he'd be proud of to be associated with that. And uh, thanks for asking me about it. All right. Well, I think this is a perfect ending. Uh, we have a, a sort of quasi rule of law series here on TMT time. And for those of you that are wondering what in the heck all this has to do with technology, media and telecom, Senator Dodd did mention he was the general counsel of the Motion Picture Association. So we got that reference. He also talked about uh, the gambler, which, you know, we fit in. So, uh, Senator Dodd, Great to see you today. Great to hear some of the story. I appreciate your time so very much uh, and wish you the best of luck and health going forward. We'll do it again sometime, Evan. I enjoyed it immensely. And thanks to Jan and your technology team as well uh, uh, that have helped you put all this together. So I thank you for that.